Hello, Guitar Smarts listeners. This is an important announcement. Please don't skip ahead. We start this podcast with a special message. Way back in 2021, Guitar Smarts had the pleasure of interviewing the utterly fantastic Matt Long. Matt is a multiple award-winning British blues guitarist and lead singer of the British blues band Catfish and hard rock outfit The Revenant Ones. He joined us for episode number 20 and was a truly gracious guest who spoke about his career, his childhood, guitars and meetings his hero, Joe Bonamassa. Well, Matt needs your help. Through 2023, Matt has been undergoing treatment for bowel cancer, and his recent prognosis has meant that to extend his life and retain a chance of survival, he needs to seek private treatment outside of the NHS. Matt's family have set up a GoFundMe page that is linked in the Guitar Smarts link tree in the description of this podcast. And we at the Guitar Smarts podcast would like to invite each and every listener to consider donating towards this fund that could well save the life of one of the brightest guitar talents of our generation. Now is the time, folks. Head on over to the link in the description to find the GoFundMe page. Donate what you can. Your donation could save a life. Thank you. Enjoy the podcast. I remember when we did my first tour of South America. I, I remember especially Rio de Janeiro and we played a few songs that I'd written in my living room, Derbyshire. And they're singing for a guitar riff back at me. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That was a moment where you go, don't cry on stage. It doesn't look very good. <laughs> Greetings, Merry Christmas, and welcome to the Guitar Smarts podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. It's been a fantastic year, fantastic first year of the podcast. We're going into the Christmas week now with probably our biggest show of the year, which is a fantastic interview uh, with an excellent guitarist and an absolute gentleman by the name of Richard Shaw. Uh, Richard Shaw is one of the guitarists for the UK-based heavy metal band Cradle of Filth. He's been a member since 2014. He's told the world numerous times with them co-written and performed on the last three albums Hammer of the Witches, Cryptoriana, The Seductiveness of Decay and Existence is Futile which has just recently come out to fantastic reviews he's been a guitar educator since about 2006 teaching all over the place in in music schools and in colleges and at university level Uh, he's been conducting master classes at colleges and music schools throughout the UK he's an incredibly accomplished session musician and he's played at over 50 musical theatre productions and if you've ever done any musical theatre stuff you know that that's as serious as it gets. Not only that but Richard joins us after just releasing his first ever educational book called Fretboard and Songwriting Theory for Metalheads and Other Genres Too Using the Secret to Unlock the Fretboard and Your Songwriting Potential. Um, It's been fantastic to have Richard on this episode. He's actually an old friend of mine. We were in the same class together at the Academy of Music many years ago in the early 2000s and I've known Richard for a long time and he hasn't changed a bit success hasn't changed him he's still as hard working and as enthusiastic as ever and it was just an absolute pleasure to speak to him today so I really hope you enjoy this fantastic interview with Richard Shaw Come and follow the podcast on the social media pages. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash guitar smarts. And you can find us on Instagram as well at guitar underscore smarts. Um, we'd really love it if you could support the podcast. Maybe come and buy some merchandise from us on our Etsy merchandise store. Or you can come and make a donation to the show via buymeacoffee.com. And the links for that are in the show description on your podcast app. Um, you can also support the show by leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app. Anyway. 
anyway finally just one last thing just Merry Christmas um, this this is coming out to you on the last week before Christmas so we hope you have a fantastic Christmas uh, a wonderful weekend and that's enough waffle from me let's get to it Kieran, how are you doing, mate? Are you well? Yeah, I'm really good, buddy. Good to catch up with you, as good always. Yeah, up. looking looking forward to today's show immensely, mate. You had a busy week. Uh, yeah, just look, man. It's uh, it's the run-up to, to, to Christmas, isn't it? So yeah. work is getting busy, trying to cram in a few last-minute bits and pieces that we're doing at work before Christmas. But at the same time... Uh, everyone's getting a little bit demob happy and feeling that Christmas thing coming along. And as yeah. we chatted last week, right, we, you you told me last week that you had the decorations up, you were in the full Christmas spirit, and and I and I was being a little bit of a of a kind of uh, humbug. So I was like, mate, we're still we're still in November. It's not ready yet. It's not right. And now we are tipped into December. So yes, mate, I'm I'm all about the Christmas vibe now. So yeah, it's yeah. been a good week for that. And I'm How just about you? Behind it. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm busy week as well. I'm just checking behind you because you have a habit of sneaking new guitars into that room sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but it all looks like we're in order. But yeah, great. Really busy week. Really, really good one. I'm glad it's Friday, but super excited about this week's podcast because we're not alone this week. Yeah. We've not had a guest for a little while, but we've got a guest yeah. and it's a bona fide rock star as well. <laughs> it is. Um, it certainly is. So we're joined this week by... Cradle of Filth guitarist, Mr. Richard Shaw. Richard, how are you doing? You good? I'm doing well, thank you guys. How are you guys? Yay. Brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> really good. Real pleasure to have you on on the show this week, mate. And um, I should do a quick introduction. So Richard Shaw, and I'm, and I'm going to, I'm being honest, I'm stealing this from the pages of your new book that you've got out. Oh God. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you, uh, for those of our listeners who don't know who Richard Shaw is, uh, Richard is one of the guitarists for the UK-based heavy metal band Cradle of Filth. Uh, he's been a member in that band since 2014. He's toured the world numerous times, co-written and performed on the albums Hammer of the Witches, 2015, Cryptoriana, The Seductiveness of Decay, 2017, which is just one of the best album names I've heard for a long <laughs> ever. time. Ever. Just ever. Exactly. And <laughs> the latest Cradle of Filth release as well, which is Existence is Futile. Uh, he's been working in guitar education since 2006, teaching at schools, colleges, universities, and conducting masterclasses at colleges throughout the UK. He's an accomplished session musician. He's played over 50 musical theatre productions, which is crazy because that's an entirely different beast, which we'll get on to later as well, uh, as well as performing as a hired gun in cover band, covers bands and tribute bands. So welcome to Guitar Smarts, Richard Shaw. Yay. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> yeah, no worries. And, and, uh, and congratulations, by the way, on um, your new book. So you're finally a published author. Uh, and you should tell us about... Tell us about that. Tell us about your new book. Yeah, it's it's weird. You're the first person who's kind of acknowledged it as I'm a published author. And it was like, <laughs> as weird as it sounds, I never really thought of it being that. It was just something I've wanted to do for well over a decade. Was I had a book idea because I hadn't seen anyone really put it into a book. And I was like, well, I'll, maybe, maybe one day I'll write it. Somebody will write it soon. If I ever find time, which... I don't think I've had for a very long time. You don't get much free time doing what I do, but free time, like doing music and now being a dad and, mm-hmm. you know, life gets in the way as it does for a lot of people. Sure. And, and then lockdown happened and I was, I found myself with a lot of free time all of a sudden. It's like, well, I'm not going on tour. I'd literally just finished recording my guitar parts for the last Cradle of Filth album when 
lockdown happened, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I, I can't really, because I was teaching. I was like, well, I, all my in-person lessons, I can't teach them. Mm-hmm. Still had some of my online lessons and then built up the online lessons. But I, at the same time, for about a good two or three week period, I was like, I have way too much free time. I can't go anywhere like the mm. rest of the world. And, and then I, I just woke up and went, I'm going to start writing that book now. <laughs> and that's, that's what happened. And I, I think I did it the wrong way round because I wrote the book and then went, cool, I'm happy with it. I think I've done it. How do you publish a book? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, so the reason why it's taken a while, because I was like, okay, I've got the book finished by like, I think it was like January, February of this year, the book was finished. But then the rest of it was like researching how to publish it. And I had a lot of friends who work in uh, guitar education and who have released books. And they say it in a weird way, it's kind of the same thing as being in a band. Like when you've got a band, you'll never get a record company to release your album until you've already proven you can sell albums on your own. <laughs> By which point it's like, well, now I don't need a record company. It was kind of the same, kind of the same with the book, yeah. where it was like, okay, they all said the same thing. It's like, unfortunately, a publisher won't really take a chance on you, on your first book. Yeah. So it was like, well, kind of have to publish it yourself. And mm. then hopefully if it does okay, publishers will take you seriously. Mm. So I was like, okay. And then it became a lot of research into how to do that and uh, how to get a cover design, how to get a barcode and an ISBN mm. number. Mm. All these things mm. I didn't necessarily think about. I was like, I'll write a book. I'll be an author. <laughs> and it's like, oh no, now I've got to wear all these hats. I suppose yeah. it's the same when you start playing guitar. I don't know about you guys. When I first started playing guitar, it was like, I just want to, jam with my mates and then it turns into to being a musician in this day and age it's like right now I need to be a, a songwriter a producer an engineer um, <laughs> you know all an these accountant. hats you've got to wear That's an it. accountant yeah, yeah, yeah. all <laughs> these lawyer, things yeah. you don't necessarily think yeah. about when you first start playing guitar it was kind of the same as writing the book it was like right I'm going to write the book and then once I went down that rabbit hole it was like oh right there's actually quite a lot I need to learn how to yeah. do before and yeah. it, it finally happened, and I published it on, um, this Wednesday, just gone, December first. Wow! Brilliant. Congratulations, Ron. I mean, thank you very much. It's great. I mean, I'm you know I'm going to buy it myself because um, I'm interested in the subject matter as well. But it's called um, for for those listening, it's called fretboard and songwriting theory for metalheads and other genres too, using yes. the secret to unlock the fretboard and your songwriting potential. The secret. How tantalising. That? Oh, that, that's, that's a proper, <laughs> proper clickbait title, that is, isn't oh, it? Properly. If I, a, if I had a YouTube channel, that would be the one I'd go with for the clicks. Yeah. See, if it, going back to kind of my childhood here, going into music shops, because when I grew up, and I'm sure it's the same for you guys, music shops always had that kind of tab section, you know, the, where yeah. you could go through tab books and things before the internet. Um and that would be the kind of thing where I'd pick up and go, right, what's the secret? I'd start scanning yeah. through the whole thing. What does he say the secret is? And I'm not going to ask you to tell us what the secret is, but I'm just going to say if you want, you know, what what are you trying to kind of, what's what's the main message you're trying to convey in, you know, in this book? Are you trying to help people to understand things differently or just share your own knowledge? It's accumulation of everything I've kind of learned over my teaching career. There was a lot of questions that more, I should say this, the book is more for intermediate to advanced players, mm-hmm. not necessarily for beginners, but a lot of intermediate to advanced players come to me kind of almost felt like they were stuck in a rut. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they'd learned all these scale shapes and then all of a sudden you say, right, let's do it in a different key. It's like, oh, now I've got to start all over again. Yeah. But even like with the minor pentatonic, it was like, okay, we're going to do it in a different key. 
Take a solo. Okay, I'll start at shape one. (laughs) (laughs) And I might branch out of it. Yeah. So, and it was something that I kind of learned, weirdly enough, at ACM, but it wasn't taught at ACM, where it was like this whole approach to seeing the fretboard where you don't use scale shapes at all. Mm -hmm. So when I play guitar, I don't use scale shapes. So, so are you thinking intervallically then? When you everything's intervallically, yeah. So yeah. scale shapes get, basically go out the window, yeah. And wow. it's knowing what those notes, not only where they're located on the neck, mm. so you can effortless go be- effortlessly go between them uh, within different keys, different scales. So if you learn a brand new scale, you're not like, oh my god, I've got a million shapes I need to learn for this scale. Mm. It's kind of like, no, you've got framework, you've got the concepts. Now apply that to the entire neck like that. Yeah. Um and and that's what I found for me was a game changer in my playing and how I viewed the fretboard. Yeah. And in a weird way that opened up a lot of creativity because I wasn't tied into the scale shapes that I'd known and loved. It was like, oh now I can break out of it. Yeah. Relatively easy easily and it it sounds more musical than just going for kind of like the set licks that your fingers mm. naturally fall on when you play in certain shapes. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so it, and it was just one of those things where I felt quite strongly about it and I shown this to quite a few of my students and within 10 or 15 minutes, they were just literally playing all over the net. Mm-hmm. Wow. Which they'd never done before. Mm. Yes, it, you pick up the concept relatively quickly, but it obviously, as we know, it's that daily application of going, let me get more and more comfortable with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a good point. I mean, that's something that's I think has come to my playing only this year, um, after, even after all this time. Um, which is that that thought process of thinking of of things and about the musical function rather than just the shapes. Because we're guilty as guitarists, we learn things in very physical and, and shape formats, scale mm. shapes and things, and especially Definitely. chord shapes and stuff. And um, you know, I only came to the realization this year that when you think about like the major scale modes, for example, it's it's the it's the semitones. It's the semitone. It's the it's the notes that are a semitone apart from each other that really define the scale. When mm. you think about the major scale, it's that major seventh and the major third to major fourth that define mm. it. And you think about the um, Lydian scale, it's it's the semitone between the sharp fourth and the fifth, mm. and then the major seventh and the and the. So it's always you can look at if you know the major scale, you kind of the thing that defines the sound of the modes is where those two semitones. So you start thinking intervallically and it really does change your approach to playing. You can then think where you are on the neck and change where you go, depending on what mm. interval you want to express. And all of a sudden you're not thinking of a shape anymore. And you're not exactly because when you think of shapes, you tend to move in very linear ways as well, rather than thinking. So that, that is, to, to, that's a really key thing. So I think this, this book is going to be really key for, and like you say, for other genres too, not just metalheads. If you're any, if you're a guitarist that is in that rut and you want to break out, I think this book's going to really, really help. So thank you. Yeah. It's uh, it was one of those things where I started talking about this concept, the, the secret. Because it's amazing how many professional musicians I met that knew of this approach. Yeah. Ah. But nobody was talking about it. It's like, why do we still talk in terms of scale shapes yeah. and chord shapes? Why yeah. is nobody talking about this? And why, why does it have to be this closely guarded secret? And I've never understood why. Even my guitar teachers, one of my guitar teachers at ACM, who was talking about this concept. And I was like, why aren't we taught this from day one? Mm. And it's almost like, well, you have to understand the the shapes and their relation to each other. And 
basically go the hard way round, yeah, the wrong right. way round to appreciate the easy way. So do you agree with that? To a, to a certain extent. Um, I, 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 I was kind of frustrated that I knew all these scales, I knew all these chords, yet all of a sudden we'd go, right, now let's do it in the key of B major. And you're like, oh, I know it in C major really well. Now why have, yeah. you, why have you done that? <laughs> why have you, now I've got to like almost go back to ground zero to think yeah. about all those shapes in relation to each other. Whereas yeah. with this concept, I found like I didn't need to go back to ground zero because mm. it's actually a relatively simple thing when you understand it. It's a relatively simple thing, but like say the application of it takes a while and obviously daily practice like anything else. I'm properly excited by that. So I, I, I think, I think um, there's a place for scale shapes and like technique practice. And it's almost like guitar players learn, right, here's a scale shape because then you know what the right notes are instead of yes. going, well, now yeah. your fingers are being dictated by set patterns. Yeah. Whereas when I started with this, using this approach, it was almost like the musicality and the creative side of my brain and my ear mm. kind of fused together. It's like, well, mm. where do I want mm. this? this to go more than being defined of what, where does the scale shape dictate? I'm going to go next. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. we've all done it where it's like, it's like, and don't get me wrong. We've all gone through it and we all should go through it to develop that technique. But there comes a point where it's like, well, that's not really musical anymore. Yeah. yeah. That's my, that's for shape dictating what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Instead of my imagination and my, my ear wants me to go. Mm. Now, where do I find that on the guitar instead of doing it the other way around? Yeah. Yeah. I can really relate to that. Sorry, go on, Kieran. I was going to say, I can just really relate to that. I think, you know, and that's why I kind of asked the question around, as you described what your, your kind of guitar teacher had said before is, you know, we want you to go through the pain of learning this by rote and then, then you'll kind of get this secret as it, as it were later down the line. Yeah. Um, and you did, you did say, you know, at the, at the beginning, this is more for the intermediate player. So I, so I, so I guess there is a level of foundational work and graph that you need to put in, but I just, just the way you describe that, because, you know, I'm, I haven't been to ACM like you guys, I'm a kind of self-taught guitarist. So I'm very much in that, in that kind of relationship with my playing and, and music in general, which is, like using my ear a lot to understand the intervals and how to find the, the the tones that I want on the neck based on where I am and then and then my own kind of ear training to 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 get the sounds that I want, but then trying to also relate it to scale shapes and, and there's that clash between the two of them where they don't quite knit together and make sense yet. If someone says to me, just play, you know, just play from your gut and from your and, and from your soul and just and just let your fingers and, and head just go where you know the notes are because of, of where you are and, and, and your knowledge of the fretboard. Great, I can do that. And if someone says, well, play to me this this scale, then, then I go into that right ground zero, let's build it up and, and start again. But what you're kind of describing is a way to, to interlink those two things, I, I guess, in a, in a way that just makes people feel more comfortable and takes their playing in a different direction. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited listening to, to what you're describing because I think for a lot of players out there, that rut you describe is, is a very real frustration. And when I speak to Matt about it, as we have done many times on the podcast, right, and you've explained to me and tried to teach me elements of, 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 of this, I kind of get little bits of it here and there, but it's still that, that constant conflict of, yeah. right, do, what, what scale shape do I learn here versus 
just what feels right to me. Um, mm. So, yeah, really, really exciting. It, it's that constant battle I find with a lot of my students where it's like, well, I like this sound, but how do you find that sound? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's they're, want, they're naturally wanting to break out from what we know. And I think a lot of musicians do. You just get to that point where it's like, this can't be it. Yeah. <laughs> like yes. what I've learned so far, and I've learned all these scales, and this cannot be it. And I've just got to repeat this until my playing career is over, until I decide to quit, or you know, whatever you yeah. want to do. <laughs> it can't be it, and it's it's not. It's finding the sound in your head first. Yes, but this is why I talk about theory, the songwriting theory side of things. It's like, yes, mm. this is the first half book is like finding these things. It's mm. like now you get that concept. Here are some different ideas and some different scales and maybe some, here are the chords we can use with those scales. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, when I'm writing, I do write from the gut and what sounds mm-hmm. good, mm-hmm. but there comes, especially in Cradle of Filth, there's always this little something that happens where as I've written this chord progression, I'm like, this just sounds good to me. I don't even know what key <laughs> I'm in right now. I'm just going, <laughs> I'm just going with what feels right. Yeah, and yeah. our singer is a bugger for this because he always chooses those parts where he's like, maybe you want to do a guitar solo over that. And you're like, <laughs> right, now I've got to really think about what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. Like what, what, and that's where the, the second half of a book going, right, okay, now that you know where you're going on a fretboard, you found these wonderful new things. How can we, if you get stuck in a rut when writing a song, and you're like, no, don't know what to do. Here's a little theoretical device that I use to kind of unlock the door. There might be a sound I want to hear in my head. Well, there's a theoretical explanation and there's a theoretical device that will basically be the key to unlock the door to the sound you hear in your head. Mm. So I still, and I still say this in my book and I say it to all my students, just because you know the theory doesn't mean you're a great player. It's yeah. the application of that theory. I use theory as like a get-out clause. It's like, right, okay, I've hit a brick wall, <laughs> but I know the sound I hear in my head. Let's just go back into that like in my, into my brain and go through the filing cabinet. Ah, that, that's, that's the thing I need. That's why. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. why. Ah, yeah. cool. Now I've found this new device. That means I can go, ah, now I've written a bridge. Instead of nice. taking two days to find what I want, mm-hmm. I, it now takes me two minutes. Yeah. Yes. That's a really important point, isn't it? Because yeah. that's where the frustration comes in as when you get to that intermediate kind of level where, as you said, you know this more, you can't quite grasp it. And because your playing has reached a certain level already and, you know, you kind of get frustrated that it's not happening as quickly as you want it to. And, mm. and then you end up giving up or some players end up giving up because they go, oh, well, I'll just go, just fall back on what I know. Exactly. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's too difficult. It's taking too much more time and I'm frustrated because I feel like I'm a guitar player already. So that speeding up that process is 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 a wonderful thing to be able to try. But, but it's people. that whole thing of... Uh... I can't remember. It was like the four stages. I read all these hippie trippy books, but all these like (laughs) the four stages of knowledge or whatever. And it's like, what, what is it? Like there's the first stage where it's like, you don't know that you don't know it. Yeah. 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 Unconsciously incompetent. Unconsciously incompetent. incompetent, Then consciously incompetent. Then you go into basically this is the thing. And it's it's exactly the same thing that happens through any skill that anybody learns. Matt, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I went to ACM because I almost got to that point where it's like, right, I know how little I know on my guitar. When I was kind of a lot younger player and you're like, yeah, I'm a hot shot 
player I'm played the best in bands. Guitarist in the I'm, world. Like, yeah. I'm like 14 <laughs> years old. Yeah, I've learned the minor pentatonic. Like, let's let's see how fast my fingers can fly. <laughs> and then, literally, I remember discovering how little I knew. Bear in mind, I was doing my A levels, and I did like. Steve Vai songs. And then wow. I was like, well, I need to take this to the next level. I was playing Steve Vai songs like note for note perfect. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was literally just learning it parrot fashion from the tab and then yeah. listening to the to the record to go, well, there's the rhythm. I've just got to try and play as fast as that after God knows how much practice. But when I got my ACM audition form, I don't know if you remember this, Matt. It said like on the on the tape, this was Tape, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, back then, back in 2003, when I had to borrow my school's Tascam four track to do my ACM audition, yeah. and I had to I work, those, figure yeah. out how to work that in the same way I had to figure out how to use Logic today. Like, and I'm there going right. I, I think I press play and record at the same time, and then like number one was like play the G minor pentatonic scale. I think it was. Yeah. And I was like, piece of piss, no yeah. problem. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a definite place on the degree. And then I was surprised. And then I was surprised when I didn't get on the degree. I know it's, it sounds, oh. I didn't get on the degree course. I got on the higher diploma course. Yeah. Right. I, so I didn't go on the diploma, but I went straight mm. into the higher diploma. And I, I remember asking them going, well, just out of curiosity, why didn't I get on the degree? Because I fulfilled all the criteria. And they said, well, you only played one shape of the G minor pentatonic scale. And I went, there's more than one shape. <laughs> and it was just that thing. And it was that noticing, that, that yeah. part of my career where it's like, I didn't know there was more than that. But now yeah. I know there is. I've not even scratched the surface. Well, even Kieran and I know, Rich, that there's another one that I knocked in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, exactly. I was, I was like, I, I was, I think that was what I was thinking, the minor pentatonic scale in two positions, at least two positions. And I was, I was like, right, I'll play it from the third fret and the 15th fret. I've yeah. got this nailed. I know exactly what I'm doing. And, and it was- Strutting down to the post box with your two. Yeah, exactly. Here we go. I've got this in the bag, you know? And, and it was, it was one of those things where I didn't realise how little I knew. So sorry to interrupt this fantastic interview with Richard Shaw, but if you're enjoying this podcast, maybe you should subscribe to the show so that you never miss another episode. Pause it here, go away and subscribe, and then come back to the show. Let's get to it. I think we all naturally do this, and Mm. for me, almost writing this book was that next step of that, of going, Mm. when I was became aware of this concept, everything opened up for me. Yeah. And the theory side, I naturally went down the theory route because one, I was genuinely interested in it. And I think at ACM, it helped that I had teachers who who you could tell they were passionate about theory and could communicate it in a way that I hadn't heard theory before. Mm. Like theory to me was a very intimidating word and a very intimidating concept. And when you're taught it by someone who could tell is passionate about it and can articulate it in a very relatable way, Mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys. I, I mean, I did A-level music and all the theory was like keyboard based. Mm. You read the theory in a textbook and it yeah. always related everything to the, to the piano. And I was there going, well, how does this relate to my instrument? Yeah. Yes, I know a C major scale, but I couldn't play it on the guitar because mm. all the textbooks just went, well, it's C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Brilliant. Yeah. Where's that on the guitar? so so to me theory was kind of pointless I'd learned it but I didn't know how to relate it to the instrument so that's what I've tried to do in this book is try to break that down that you can move away from scale shapes and so picking up that concept 
And then the next idea is going, going oh, okay, how can we expand, expand on that? So we now have more uh, sounds at our disposal. Mm. How do mm. I get that sound? Mm-hmm. How did the Beatles get that amazing mm. change in the bridge of We Can Work It Out? <laughs> like, it, that's why you get into all this modal interchange stuff and all this, all this stuff, kind of natural curiosity of how do I write better songs like my heroes? Why are they using that chord? How can I do that? And that's kind of how I inevitably came down the theory route. Yes. Because I, out of sheer curiosity, of it wasn't like learning theory going, well, I'm going to start at page one in the textbook and then go end up at whatever page. Now I know theory. It no. was more of this kind of very organic, holistic thing of, I, I'm just trying to emulate my fi- favourite players. Yeah. yeah. Why does that work? Yeah. And that's kind of what I kind of talk about in this book. It's, it's that question why, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, one of the things I like about, um, like, you know, Rick Beato on YouTube. Oh, one yeah. I, one of the things I love about his YouTube channel is he does those great videos where he's he's explaining that to you. He's kind of saying, this is why this works. This is why this is pleasing to the ear. And as much as kind of, you know, my younger self would have said for a long time, I don't need to know theory to, to really, yeah. you know, enjoy and love music. There does come, as you progress as a musician in any instrument, there will always come a point in time where a lack of understanding in theory is going to hold you back, especially if you're starting to hear things in your mind musically mm. that you can't express. Because I guess there's a misalignment, isn't there? There's your... There's your physical ability as a, as a guitarist. There's what you want to do and what you hear in your head. Mm. And when the, you know, you want to have all those things in a, in a line, don't you? But inevitably yeah. as guitarists, we develop a physical ability ahead of our understanding. But then at some point, the things we hear in our mind musically go past our physical ability. And now everything is in a different place and trying yeah. to bring those things back in, in a line is difficult because Definitely. of the way we learn the instrument. So I find it is almost like spinning plates, like a lot of guitar <laughs> players. Once you get into it, like you, you pick it up for purest of reasons. It's like, I'll just yes. be, I, I just think I'll be the greatest guitar player if I learned how to play Wonderwall or whatever. You know what I mean? I'll think, I'll, yeah. that, that's it. That's all I ever want to do. Um, for me, it was, if I could ever play the solo and be home, Bohemian Rhapsody, I think I'd be the greatest guitar player that ever lived. And then you finally learn how to play the solo and Bohemian Rhapsody and you inevitably get on to the next step. And and, and it just, I love that it's an ongoing thing. I'll never be the greatest guitar player on the planet, but I'm having a lot of fun trying to be. You know what I mean? Like trying to discover new things. And it's that, that curiosity and that love and that passion has never left since my first chord you know when i first learned a d chord i was like oh my fingers hurt but by god i love the sound of it you know what i mean like the, the first time i played a d chord and it didn't buzz i was like, oh i'm the greatest of the ever best. like it's just that confidence that came naturally yeah. and yeah. to me the, the, the book that i've written is which is literally i'm pointing it to over here like it's just amazing to actually hold it in my hands is it's the, the natural conclusion of just these years of curiosity and yeah just maybe I'll just condense it into a book form, you know? It's just fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm so pleased for you that you've, that you've been able to do it as well. And, and it sounds like it took quite some time this year for you to translate it from the work you'd done into a book, but congratulations, Rich. Thank you. Thank you. It, it was just one of those things where, as you know, life gets in the way. I'm a dad and I teach, I'm obviously touring, I'm writing and recording. It's always one of those things I wanted to do, but yeah. it was like just, life found a way to make it not happen 
Yeah. yeah. And the, the reason it took so long, I mean, I was bu- buying a house. <laughs> we were like going on tour, trying to navigate our way around COVID daily meetings about tours because like, <sighs> what what are we going to do? And then it's yeah. stuff that pushes it back. Mm. And then th- thankfully, I just learned how to self-publish on Amazon as a way to self-publish it and work my way around all that software and all the criteria you need to meet and all this kind of stuff. So when I come to do another book, now that I know how to do it, like any skill, I suppose, once you know how to do it, next time's going to be even easier. You can relate That's that great. to any That's... skill in life, you know? Just yeah. it's it's always that chipping away at the, I mean, I'm I'm listening to the Will Smith audio book at the moment because he's just released an autobiography. Yeah. The first thing he talks about is like how he was taught by his dad to lay a, a wall, like how to build a wall, physically build a wall. It's like, why do I need to know this? And then it got to a point where after about a year of building this wall. He was like, the reason you're getting frustrated is because you're looking at the wall. You're thinking about the wall. Think about the brick. Yeah. Like, and, and it's like, it's super hippie trippy as it sounds. It is true. It's like just, just that little bit every day. Yeah. And before you know it, you're like, oh, I know how to do this. That's really <laughs> yeah, weird. And I, that's kind of how I, I saw the book was like, well, as long as I make a start on it. That's it. Don't, don't put any deadline on myself. And yeah. Don't think about, it the quiet. Wall, think about the yeah. brick. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly. a really great mantra to have, I think. It is. Yeah. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Will. (laughs) If you're listening, Will, thank you. (laughs) You know what that relates? (laughs) That relates to guitar playing in so many ways, right? Because, and especially what you've described, Richard, which is this this frustration point or this stuck in a rut bit and then trying to become more consciously competent, as you described, Matt. You know, everyone's on that journey. And we've, we've had guests on the show as well guitar teachers and things that have really stuck in my mind from the conversations with them is exactly what what you're describing which is you know we're all on our individual journey we all want to be able to think that we've mastered this instrument and we've we've unlocked it but you'll never reach that end destination and don't kind of get frustrated and Mm. judge yourself on what others are doing or where you think you should be. Just keep adding one brick every week if you can. And Matt and I constantly challenge each other on the podcast with a, with a little thing every week. It's like, what's, what's the one little thing you're going to try and do on the guitar next week? Just to, just to push yourself a little bit forward. It doesn't have to be like, right, I'm going to be able to play for the love of God, note for note, you know, from, from, from not knowing it at all. It's just like, well, I'm just going to try and listen to, this bit and figure out what's going on there because that passage or phrase has always eluded me in a particular song and I'm just mm. going to have a go at that or I'm mm. just going to try and use use a bit more of this theory I've been learning and just try and find a way to make it musical or whatever we're just we're always talking about that on the show right just adding that and I'm going to we're going to steal this analogy now from from Will fire you <laughs> <laughs> just adding adding that one more brick every 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 time exactly. you pick it's, up the I mean, instrument I mean I I naturally go down the hippie trippy route with, with all this kind of stuff because there are so many parallels. I think I think a lot of guitar players who've been playing a long time, not to sound too preachy about it, but it's I think a lot of guitar players do find a lot of a lot of analogies in life with their guitar playing. There's there's gonna be yeah. times in life where you struggle and it's like you find a solution, you find a way through it. Like teaching teaching you to have patience in life. Like everything's not gonna go your way when you want it to go your way. True. Guitar playing True. is a very good reminder of that to go mm. enjoy the process don't yeah. worry about the destination yeah. you will get there just enjoy the process mm-hmm. and uh yeah that that's that's my hippie trippy talk done for the day i don't think that's too hippie trippy i think that's good sound advice uh, there's a piece that we we learned uh, that i learned the other day that i was telling matt about and now the, now i've learned the piece 
I almost care less about the fact that I've learned the piece, even though it was on the to-do list for many years. Yeah. The thing that I really enjoyed was the days of sitting down and breaking it down and trying to build up to that point. And it was yeah. more about actually, retrospectively now, I thought I would get the accomplishment from learning the piece. But I don't really want to play it anymore. But what I do want to do is go through that experience of, and reward loop of, of making that incremental progress every day, because that it's, was actually yeah. the most fun it bit. Is. It's finding that flow, that creative flow, when you're really passionate about something, you're just immersed in it. I think yeah. I live for that. <laughs> I, I actively search that out. Like I've done yeah. it so many, I've, I think we've all done it in our life. Like there was a time when I wanted to learn, oh, I don't, don't know, like mentioning Bohemian Rhapsody again. Um, mm. Once I could play that song all the way through, that was my big goal as a diehard Queen fan was to play that song start to finish with the record. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the goalposts shift and you go, well, cool, I'll find another song to learn now. And it was like literally, like you say, within minutes of doing it, I'm like, cool, let's yeah. do it with something new. And it is. <laughs> and, it is. And, and again, you can equate that to life as well. It's taking yeah. the time to almost be grateful for what you've accomplished, but at the same time, mm. knowing there's more. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it's finding that balance that I've always struggled with, not just in guitar playing, but in life. It's like, well, be, be happy for where I am, mm -hmm. but n I, I'm aiming for that. Yeah, you know there's I mean? a lot to be said, isn't there, for being in a constant state of learning for learning's sake and understanding yes, definitely. how good it feels to um, to be in a state of kind of self-improvement rather mm. than, you know, for, for the sake of learning the thing you're, you're learning. I've, I've done that one too many times. Eight finger tapping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember being at ACM going, going like, what, what, how come everybody else seems to be able to sweet pick and I can't? I didn't even know what sweet picking was, despite being a Steve Vai fan. But, but for context reasons, 2003, no YouTube. So unless you owned a VHS or a DVD, you yeah. didn't know how it was played. Yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. you didn't see it played in front of you. Um, so when I got to ACM, I was like, oh, that's what he's doing. Why am I trying to alternate pick it as fast as I can and then be a surprise that I can't play it up to speed? I just thought Steve Vai was this god that nobody could play as fast as that. And I was like, oh, that's because I've been doing it wrong. But because when you become aware of those things, and I became, it, it was one of those things where sweet picking for me was like, now this is the measure of a great guitar player. When you can sweet pick, I'll be on a whole new level of guitar player. Then I learned how to sweet pick devoted months if not years of my life to it and then when you can do it you go don't really use it now you know what I mean it's like that really weird thing it's, yeah. it's almost like I don't know it, it, I just find the, the goalpost shifting and like like yeah. eight finger tapping I think I tried that for about a month of my life and then went I have never in my life needed to eight finger tap that what a waste of practice time that was <laughs> and I think it's different for everybody you just need to know what you want to do as a guitar player which again yeah. constantly evolves yeah. Yeah, and pursue the thing you are passionate about at that point in time, and you will naturally improve. Wow, what wise words! Absolutely, very wise. I, it's, it's that's that's something that it's it's almost painful that it takes so long to come to that con conclusion when you're a guitarist, you know, because nobody comes to that conclusion six weeks after first picking up the guitar. It's always about ten years afterwards when you've, you know, you've got to a certain stage <laughs> and you go, kind of, oh well, yeah, I should have realised that. But I wanted to go back to. ACM because obviously um, we were there at the same time you know that's 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 when we first met and I remember you being you know a very dedicated student you know you you clearly worked hard 
Um, were you driven by an enthusiasm the whole time or did you actually have to, did you work hard to develop a discipline in your studying as well? Or, you know, was it hard for you? Oh, wow. That's a really good question because like anything, this things like when I was doing like my GCSEs and my A-levels, there are certain subjects where it was like, I just enjoy doing this. And I just naturally spent more time on those. But other yeah. subjects that you kind of had to do where I was like, oh, there was even subjects I was good at, but wasn't passionate about. So I kind of kept the time revising for those bits kind of to an absolute minimum. And when I was at ACM, I just found it was, for, yeah, it was, it was that first time in my life not to go too emotional with this, but it was the first time in my life where I was like outside of my own hometown. Mm. All of a sudden, I'm now in a school surrounded by like-minded people, not just people who happen to live in the same town as me. Mm -hmm. And we're all in this together because we all just live in the same town. We're all by default go to the same school. Now it was like, now I'm surrounded by people who don't think I'm weird for wanting to play guitar (laughs) all day, every day. Like I'd be at parties wanting to talk about the intricacies of Beatles and Queen yeah. and Metallica and people are going, are you all right? Like, 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 just because I didn't want to like, I don't know, be on the wreck with a bottle of white lightning. I wanted to, I wanted to stay at home and play guitar. And I, not that I was, I was kind of bullied for it. Going, You're just weird. Why would you just mm. want to sit and play guitar for hours? What's wrong with you? Whereas when I was at ACM, it was like, people want to have, conversations about Albert King and, you know, Joanne yeah. Shaw Taylor and all these kind of people. You're like, they're going, this is, this is pretty cool. I'm yeah. not the weird <laughs> one anymore. So I think it helped that I was around like-minded yeah. people and it wasn't seen as weird. And I wanted that. I was, I was just passionate. I wanted to learn it. So I found that work ethic just came from being passionate about it. And I can understand it when you're in a more of an academic thing when you've got deadlines to meet, that could chip away at people's passion. You know, I'm sure mm. some people spring to mind, Matt, I'm not going to name any names, but where you go, they were brilliant players, but all of a sudden they were met with all these deadlines and this workload. And it was like, you know what? I, just, it's, I don't want to do that right mm. now. Mm. I, I, <laughs> like, I want to pursue this thing. And yeah. the academia side of thing is almost getting in the way of that. Mm. And um, I, I, I just went to ACM knowing, go, I'm here for a reason. I'm just going to knuckle down and do it. And to be honest with you, I just genuinely felt like one of the worst players there. Mm. And I think there was, a, not to get too weird with it, but I just, I think there was almost like, if I'm being honest, you're 18 years old trying to fit in with this new peer group. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden feeling like the weakest one there was almost like, oh crap, um, I really need to up my game. Like I say, I know shape one of a minor pentatonic, not knowing there was another four <laughs> going, oh, why does everybody else know there are five? And I don't, yeah. oh no, oh no, I'm, I'm so far behind. Yeah. So I think a bit of that work ethic came of, oh, I just need to get to the same level as everybody else, but not to sound too big headed here, but all of a sudden what I thought everybody else knew was up here. Mm-hmm. So I was aiming for that. Everyone was actually here. But for some yeah. reason in my head, I had this thing of, oh, everyone's way better than me. They all know these things. How come everyone can sweet pick already and knows what a dominant ninth chord is? I've never even heard of a seventh chord. I play power chords. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that, and I think that's what it was. I think I, in my head, I assumed everybody knew all this stuff already. 
Mm. And I was way behind. And then when I did get to that level, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. right. <laughs> so, so it almost in like the, I, so it's like a chicken and the egg situation. Did the work mm. ethic come first or was the work ethic kind of born from almost competitiveness? I don't know. Mm. Kind of, they kind of fed each other a little bit. Yeah. That's that's a that's interesting. You're driven by a situation that maybe only existed in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Again, analogy for life. But how many times Honestly, have you had relationships with people yeah. where you think, actually, if we just talked this through and realised yeah. we were yeah. on the same page, but from different perspectives, it would have been a hell of a lot less dramatic and a lot of an easier conversation yeah. to have with people. And that's, I think, kind of what happened in my head. It was like, when I was at ACM, it was like, I need to be at this level to be, if I don't come out of this being able to be Steve Vai, yeah. I, I'm i not good enough. And it was like, actually, that's really not the case at all. But you actually came out as was Richard Shaw. Exactly. In my way, disappointingly so. Well, I was like, all <laughs> oh, right. But again, with, with age and maturity, I realised actually that wasn't a bad thing to come out mm. as, a, mm. as probably what I always was, but it was like blossomed. You know what I mean? It, it came, yeah. And I didn't see it as a bad thing to be me. I was like, why don't I sound exactly like Brian May when I play Queen material? You know, why don't yeah. I sound like Larry Colton when I try and play some Steely Dan stuff? It's like, that's because he's Larry Colton and because he's Brian May. Yeah. I'm Richard Shaw. This is, um, this is turning into probably one of the most philosophical podcasts we've done. I'm loving, I'm, I'm loving. Sorry, I was going to say, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, not at all, because... <laughs> Because I've been having these conversations, uh, and I, and I, and I, and I do this, uh, some of this coaching with, with, uh, people that I work with. And, and what you're referring to is, is what is often called like this imposter syndrome. Yeah. Right. Where, you know, and it happens at all levels, right? It happens with really senior people and seasoned people in their professions, careers, whatever discipline it is they're doing, being a guitar player or a CEO for a company or, or whatever is, you know, you, you keep going through these different positions and phases of your life and then thinking, am I ready for this? Am I right for this? That, that feeling you described at rocking up to ACM on, on day one. And, Long story short, when you unravel and unpick this constant imposter syndrome that we all have in our lives at various stages, it turns out that the that the secret and the way to get around it is just to be authentic and just be who you are and not yeah. try to compare yourselves to other people or emulate what they do because everyone's got their own monkey on their back. Everyone's got their own imposter syndrome going on and the way to cut through it all and ultimately, you know, uh, be better is, is is just be yourself and recognize what your own strengths are and and and, and play to that and it's uh, exactly but it exactly. is obviously easier said than done right it's, it it's, a, it's, a, it's 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 way easier said than done and, and we will mm. go through that but as you say i just hearing you say the, the thing i figured out was that is i am richard Shaw, and this is what i need to do that so it's just like well <laughs> it, there you go you've it, nailed it that's it, it. that is it's it. weird i remember reading this years ago where i think i think quote i might be paraphrasing here but it was something like comparison is the thief of joy nice and nice uh, it's it's one of those things that really rang true with me because i was always trying to get to be like somebody else Mm -hmm. as a guitar player you can relate it to other areas in life as well but as a guitar player again i come back to steve vai i wanted to be like steve vai and then it comes to a point where it's like because i'm not steve vai at that level that must mean I'm not a good player. And then all of a sudden it was like one of those realizations where it's like, no, I, I am a good player. Yeah. I'm just a different player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, and then all of a sudden I kind of enjoyed the process even more than I already mm-hmm. did. When you start get, turning from what we talked about earlier, where I was starting to play guitar just through the sheer joy and 
sheer curiosity, you just naturally get better. There mm-hmm. came a point, I'm not going to lie, towards the end of the ACM days where it's like, well, I, I can't improvise over jazz chord changes very well. Does this mean I'm an awful guitar player? Like, why don't I sound like Joe Pass when I try and navigate? Because yeah. he's Joe Pass. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't mean I'm a bad player because I can't do some certain things. Like, you start to realise what you can do. Obviously, always work on your weaknesses, but I became known for doing something that I was naturally kind of good at and Mm. it's turned into a career for me where I was always focusing on what I couldn't do and thinking I wasn't a good player. Even when I first joined Cradle of Filth, I got the call. It's coming up to eight years. It was December 13th, 2013, weirdly enough. I got the call. That's a lot of 13s. It feels appropriate though. It feels appropriate. I got got the call. Yeah, December 13th. I just finished a gig with one of my old bands when I got a call from a mate of mine who is Cradle of Hill's sound guy, or he was at the time. And he just asked me, would I be willing to audition for the band? He, If I wasn't available, put he's going to put my name in a hat, basically. Mm. They're struggling to find people. They'd lined people up, but for some reason they hadn't sent their audition video in. And the, the deadline was coming up literally like a couple of days later. So he asked me if I'd be available. I was like, cool, yeah, just come on in as a session guitar player, do one tour and that's it. Mm-hmm. I need to say I passed the audition and then it was like, right, cool. Here's the set list. Learn this. This was like a few days before Christmas. I finally got the, the call. And so over that kind of holiday period, I'm sat there going, right, I need to learn how to play in a completely different style of music I've never played in before. Wow. And then all of a sudden, as I'm learning the songs, I was found myself getting incredibly frustrated. And I was, again, mm-hmm. imposter syndrome took over mm-hmm. and I was very close to calling them up and saying, you've got the wrong guy. Mm. Wow. And I'm so glad I didn't for obvious yeah. reasons, <laughs> of course. for very obvious reasons. I basically had to like shake myself out of it, to be honest yeah. with you, and be like, yeah. there's a reason they've asked me to do it. Um, I've just got to crack on. I've just got to stop wallowing and going, mm. what I can't do and just find a way around this. And I learned how to do it. And it, weirdly enough, it didn't help that I was learning one of the hardest songs in their catalogue first and then once i got that done and i think because it was all learned by ear it was like a 10 minute long song with all these time signature changes tempo changes trying to do it all by ear and then the next song i learned was like one of their easiest ones and i was like oh actually i I might be able to do this after all all of a sudden it got easier and easier and easier and then i'm glad i didn't go with my knee-jerk reaction of learning that first song and going i'm not good enough to do this because i did i almost convinced myself and it's almost like I had to talk myself to myself in a more positive way of going, no, you can get this. You just yeah. need to prioritise what you do and just be more time efficient and spend yeah. more time on it, you know? Think about the brick. It's the brick again. Cheers, Will. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that same old thing. I, I, I was learning this huge song and it, just the more it, it became more daunting and intim- intimidating. What, what I had to do, I've got 75 minutes of music to learn. Wow. Oh, wow. like, and I've got like four weeks to do it in and around family time, still teaching full time. Yeah. I think I was working on a musical at the same time as well. Wow. So it was like, I've got all this stuff and, and it just became one of those things where, again, to use Will Smith's analogy, it was like, right, today I'm going to learn this riff. Yeah. Don't worry about the song. I'm going to l- yeah. do it one riff at a time. Before, within four, four weeks, I'd learned the entire material and it was there under the fingers ready yeah. for that first rehearsal. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that's brilliant. 
every time something happens in my life where I think, oh God, it's getting overwhelming. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. I always look back at that and go, well, you did mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So, and that was quite a high pressure stake there. Yeah. So you're about, you're about to do your first European tour playing in front of like two to 3,000 people every night with people you've never met before. Yeah. You did that. So there's going to yeah. be other things in life that you will be able to do. And and for a, and for a bona fide British, yeah. you know, extreme metal group that's been around for exactly that point, what twenty twenty odd years, they'd already been established. For? They'd, they'd be around for twenty years at that yeah. point. It's, it's now thirty wow. years, wow. Uh, pretty much. And it's it was one of those things where it's like I am feeling this pressure, but again, I just almost have to remember. It was almost like everything I'd learned on the guitar and especially at ACM had kind of funneled down to that moment. Everything we had yeah. learned was like, you know, do you remember the lessons with like Eric Roach where it's like, well, work on your ear and your sight reading. I'm thinking, why do I need to learn how to sight read? I'm a heavy metal guitar player. I'm never going to need to sight read. Weirdly enough, I have sight read. Obviously, before joining Cradle of Filth, all of a sudden I'm making a career playing musical theatre. And yeah. if you can't read... You can't <laughs> forget it. You can't <laughs> forget it. So I was like, oh, that's why I learned how to read music. Got the Cradle of Filth job when I'm learning everything by ear. I was like, yeah. that's why I worked on my ear. Weirdly enough, I have had to sight read in a Cradle of Filth recording situation. So I'm really glad I learned how to sight read for that moment in time when I was in the yeah. studio. Vindication. It was, stuff like, it was stuff like that where you go, that's why they told us to pay attention. Right. Mm. That's why we had to learn. The number of times I've done like tribute bands and covers bands where we're doing Stevie Wonder songs and you're like, they're going, that's why I had to learn seventh chords. You know, you know stuff like that. There's <laughs> a rock player. Well, I'm never going to need these <laughs> I don't play jazz. Then all of a sudden I'm playing a hell of a lot of Stevie Wonder and Steely Dan going, well, I'm glad I learned the jazz stuff because now this seems relatively straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> So it's all stuff like that. You never know what you're going to need until that moment is presented. Mm-hmm. I never knew I was going to be the guitar player in Cradle of Filth. I never would have thought that. I didn't even listen to Cradle of Filth, really. Mm. My brother was a massive fan, so I kind of knew them by default. But I would never have pictured that I would have been in a band like that. So I'm glad I learned those skills I did. And then the opportunity was presented. I was like, well, cheers, Eric. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. (laughs) So what is it like being in a, in, in Cradle of Filth? What is that like? Cause it, it hasn't been that go and do a tour, be a session guitarist. And although you've kept your hand in with various other projects and and the musical theater and stuff, you are now, you know, you've been in Cradle for, for a number of years. What, what is that like? Obviously it's very different now to how it was when I first joined the band. It was like when I first joined the band, it was like almost learn the parts, be a nice guy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Just stay out of the way, do as you're told. You're here for a reason kind of thing. And just that's how it was as a session guy. Uh, Just like many other situations I've been in, I'm paid to do a job. I'm going to do that job to the best of my ability and make it as uh, pleasurable and not as dramatic as possible. Trying to think of a word, a good word for that. But like, just try and be easygoing, do what's asked of me. And then when it was clear I was going to be a member and start writing my first album with band, even then it was like, well, how do I write in this style? And everything was a massive learning curve. Mm. Like touring with people you've never met before, touring etiquette. Like how, how do you, what do you do on a tour bus? I've never been on a tour bus. How how do you conduct a real sound check? Like how mm. how do I what do I do? And 
that kind of is different from band to band, like trying to work with a band. But now I've been with that band for so long, you can almost second guess how people are going to react to things, which means in a weird way, you can push each other further because you know yep. where the line is. When I was writing yep. my first album with them, it was like, a well, I'm kind of still doing as I'm told. I'll write a song, this style. I'll keep it nice and safe. This is in the style of Cradle of Filth. I know what works for them. See what they think. Mm-hmm. Take their word as if they don't like something or if they do like something, that's for gospel truth. They know what's good for the band. Mm. As I was writing more and got to know them more, it's like maybe we can push the boundaries yeah. out a little bit and I can kind of be more of who I am within this uh, this system. Yeah. And I can contribute more as not playing it safe. Let's try new things. And we all, we were all like that, not just me. And I think it just made for better writing chemistry better social chemistry. We just know how each other ticks uh, mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily play it safe anymore. It's like when you, you go out like with your best friends on tour, you know, you've known each other that long. You know where the line is. Yeah. If someone's yeah. having a bad day, you know to That's leave it. them alone. You know, like, you know when someone's on the cusp of going, they just need a hug. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or they're hungry yeah, yeah, or whatever. Or, yeah, you, you know, if you have a day off, you know who just wants to be left alone on a day off. There might be yeah. some, you know what I mean? It's it's little things like that that you learn by just, mm. you, life doesn't prepare you for that until you're in that situation. Yeah. So it has gotten easier in the sense that we know how each other works and how we like to write, how we like to be on tour. The working relationship almost gets easier as you go along because it is like instead of being seen as an employee fulfilling a role it's become that thing you're just making music with your mates again but it's just on a different level yeah so that makes perfect sense when you join your first band it's like like when you're kids it's like cool we'll find we need a bass player do we know any no well (laughs) you play a bit of guitar it's basically an easier version of a guitar like you can play bass now (laughs) which I know we've all been there sorry bass players I genuinely don't believe that I don't believe that but you know when you're young and you kind of have that mentality it's like now all of a sudden my bass my bass playing mate is a bass player by default but he never intended to be a bass player <laughs> like, and it's like kind of like that in a, in a weird way like you find new roles in the band mm-hmm. it's like well now in my pursuit of trying to get better as a songwriter all of a sudden it's like i'm not just writing guitar parts now i'm writing orchestral parts i'm thinking of drum beats i'm kind of thinking of diff- things in a different way and it's constantly evolving and mm. it's the way it should be, yeah, I think. Absolutely. So it sounds sounds ideal that you've you've basically gone from, like you say, a session, you know, a contractor almost who's there to do a job yeah. and now you're an integral part of, of the band, the process, the the way it currently works. And I'm I'm sure you you never imagined when you first started with them that it would come to this. And it's fantastic. I, I was literally employed mm. to do one month with the band. A month-long tour of Europe. I had a contract that basically says, well done, you are hired for this month on the road. You will be paid this much. Thank you very much. Basically, when you've done that tour, it's like go back to what you was doing and um, just put it on top of my CV, basically. Yeah. Fantastic. And and then it was like literally the day after that tour finished, I sat, Danny sat me down and was like, okay, um, do you want to keep doing this? The guitar player that I technically filled in for isn't coming back. So do you want to start writing a new album with us? And then it was almost like being handed your dream. Like, like yeah, while I was on yeah. tour, it was almost like, well, I know the end's coming, so I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. I'll probably never play in 
audiences this big playing mm. this style of music ever mm. again because I mm. hadn't played that style of music up to that point in my life. And I was like, well, this is a great experience. Thank you very much. And then all of a sudden it became my life yeah. and I was doing it full time. And so again, it, like, life threw that curveball at me. I was not expecting to be playing this style of music and writing this style of music and touring the world and seeing places that I could only dream of when I was a kid. So yeah. I'm incredibly fortunate. But it's, wow. been a, it's been through a process of, of work and dedication. You know, it isn't just a chance thing, is it? It. Yeah, it was almost like I was practicing and working and taking every job under the sun, saying yes to every session gig ever. Just one, because at the end of the day, I just enjoyed it and I wanted to do as much as possible. I Mm. still, to this day, see it as every session I take on with whoever band I'm working with, uh, even within Cradle, we write a new song. It's a new experience every single time. We do anything. We We might go on tour in the States for the umpteenth time but even every tour is different it's a new learning curve every show we play every sound check we do each Mm. bus journey from one it's it's a different experience something happens that means you've got to deal with it and and, and adapt in some kind of way and that's that keeps it fresh that keeps it fresh and exciting right and exactly it's still taking it one day at a time uh and just seeing it as all experience at the end of the day as long as I'm enjoying what I'm doing, I'm going to stick with it. But if I, mm. if it comes a point where I don't enjoy it anymore, I'll, I'll go. It's as simple yeah. as that. But luckily, I still enjoy it. Good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I've certainly enjoyed doing some of the research for this podcast. <clears throat> I obviously knew the name uh, Cradle of Filth beforehand. Had had listened to a little bit in the past when I was really into, into my kind of heavier stuff. Uh, and then this was a great opportunity to, to to listen again to some of the newer stuff. And I must say, the orchestration in it is, I mean, you see it on face value for what it is, and then you kind of start listening to it more and unpicking some of the layers in it. Uh, that video for Necromantic Fantasies, I can't stop watching. It's oh, like an cool. art piece. It's just, it's <laughs> oh, just, geez. it's epic. It's just epic. Uh, it, it's a cool video. Like that, that oh. guy, I, I'm not involved with the video side of things. It's kind of like Danny and the director sit down and discuss concepts and stuff. And then I just turn up on the day and go, oh, this set looks really good. This looks cool. <laughs> and, uh, I, wonder, I wonder what this video is going to look like when it's done. And and uh, I see it kind of when it goes on, well, probably a couple of days before it goes online, I see the final yeah. thing and you're like, that's amazing. And I wrote that song yeah. in the back of a van in Cardiff. Huh. And you just, <laughs> it's like moments like that. We shot the music video on my birthday this year. Right. Uh, and which was kind of weird. It's like I'm spending my 36th birthday like on a set <laughs> for a song I wrote, technically en route between Cardiff and Edinburgh, I want to say. Wow. Just stuck in a van for hours. I was like, well, I need to restring my guitar anyway. So I might as well do it here and make the most of the time and then just start playing around. I was like, I've got a cool chord progression. Yeah. And then when I got to Scotland, started working on other parts. And then by the time we drove back from Scotland, I'd kind of written the music, the song. That's and, brilliant. And then That's moments so like, maybe it'll end up on an album. I don't know. I quite like it. And then next thing you know, hang on a minute, this is going to be a single and we're going to play it around the world. 
like every night and you're like moments like that don't, are not lost on me we just no, go just how, really how, do you top that? how do you top that that is like everybody listening to, yeah, to this podcast as, a, as an aspiring guitarist will listen to that and go well what do you do once you've done that because that's just like the biggest tick on the list ever isn't it really? I'll always remember the one thing there's, there's been a lot of moments in my career with Cradle of Filth where I just go this is insane especially like we played main stage download festival in 2018 and i've been to that festival pretty much every year it's been on being the local guy yeah. i'm originally from derbyshire and we played the main stage in 2018 and that was incredible that was insane but we didn't play many songs that i had written it was more like a greatest hits like yeah. old school set let's play that we haven't got long let's just play an old school set i remember when we did my first tour of South America. I, I remember especially Rio de Janeiro and we played a few songs that I'd written in my living room, Derbyshire. And they're singing for guitar riff back at me. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That was a moment where you go, don't cry on stage. It doesn't look very good. I mean, it might add to the makeup and all that. Yeah. I was there going, literally, we started playing the song when Danny introduced the song. The crowd erupted which I was like, wow, we've not even played it yet. And they, they, they already know the song. They, yeah. They're excited to hear a brand new song that I had written in my living room. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you start the song and they're screaming the guitar riff back at you over the PA. Wow. And I was like, yeah, this is... I, I, there are no words. I'm still speechless no. when I think about it. And they were literally singing along with guitar riff all the way through the song. Unbelievable. Amazing. And it was, just, it was like feeling like you're at... Iron Maiden rocking Rio you know we're like, yeah. like singing Fear of the Dark they're doing it with one of my own songs and it, it's insane absolutely it reminds insane. me of a, I remember watching the um, the 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 video, the live performance ACDC did in Buenos yeah. Aires or somewhere like that. I and think they so. They do Highway it's to Hell and you can hear yeah. in the recording the crowd singing louder than the guitar, the riff. It must have been yeah. like that. I mean, even just to listen to that and it's somebody else's song. It's, yeah. You know, it, it makes the hers on the back of my neck stand up. So for you, that moment must have been, that'll be a lifelong cherished memory. I'm it, sure. it was. If, if it all ended tomorrow and for some reason I couldn't play or had to leave the band or something, I'll always have moments like that where you go you know what I'm incredibly lucky not many people get to experience that so I know how lucky I am well let's let's, before we wrap up let's just geek out on guitar gear a little bit okay if you you don't mind not at all (laughs) I I, I, I was looking forward to the most (laughs) (laughs) here's another thing that I bet you never never thought you'd be able to say but I'm going to say it for you you're a PRS endorsee yeah, it still sounds weird to say that. <laughs> <out loud. laughs> yeah, super cool. <laughs> I, I just said, I going to say it again. You're a Paul Reed Smith and Dorsey, which I, the, and, and the significant, uh, significance of that isn't lost on me because my memory of meeting you for the first time at ACM when we did the high diploma together was, um, it was the first time I'd ever seen a PRS was your PRS that you had then. And I remember you being particularly proud about the fact that you worked part-time as a teenager to save up enough money to go and buy that. Yeah. And I bet you you still got that, I'm sure, obviously. It's that. still here. It's right there. <laughs> I've still got Proper. my first two PRSs that I had at ACM. I had the first Santana SE that yeah. came out in 2001. And I had a part-time job working at the salad bar in Morrison's. And I, and I literally... <laughs> But I saved all my money because that came out around the same time I started that job. And I was like, oh, I've got, 
I've always wanted a PRS, but Nav is an affordable option. So I was like, I'm going to basically save my money and bought it myself as like an early Christmas present. Yeah. Literally didn't spend any of the money that I, I worked part-time for, for like three months buy that guitar. And then a mate of mine who I went to school with, all of a sudden turned up to school with a proper core American PRS. I was like, oh my God, like <laughs> how, how much do you get an hour? Yeah. And it, like, it worked very mind. He worked at the same, he worked at Morrison's with me. Yeah. And I was like going, hang on a minute, are you getting paid more than I am? Kind of thing. He was like, no, there's this magical thing called finance. <laughs> and that was it. Game over. 16 year old guitar player going, I can finally buy like the guitar of my dreams. Yeah. Uh, which weirdly enough was the Gibson Les Paul was a guitar of my dreams. I was no. going to buy that, but no. I tried out about 20 Les Pauls and didn't like any of them, which was heartbreaking <laughs> for me because I'd always wanted a Les Paul. I just didn't get on with them. And I'm still after the perfect Les Paul. I'm still after it. I know they exist, but they're always out of my price bracket. <laughs> it seems when I do find them, I'm like, oh, of course it's a, it's a 1969 Les Paul that costs like about as much as my house or whatever you know what I mean? like <laughs> of course that's the only one i get on with of course that's but it. and that's when i got the, the core custom 24 that i took with me to, to acm and it's yeah. because i did get it on finance and, mm. and uh, yeah and you've got Great. more you've got more guitars now though obviously you've got a range of prs's what's 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 your go-to instrument at the moment when you sit down and you teach or you noodle around what do you pick up the one i teach with i know for people listening they're not going to see this but this is Ooh. This is uh, a 1993 Custom 24, which I actually wow. found on tour with Cradle of Filth. found it in um, Saarbrücken in Germany. I think that's how you pronounce mm-hmm. it. Um, I just went in, we'd, we'd finished sound check, and I was just like, I'm just going to go for a walk around the town. And I found this secondhand guitar shop. Mm. And it's quite a heartbreaking story, really. I think I've said this story before on, on a couple of podcasts, but... This guitar has got a certain magic to it that I cannot describe. I mean, all my PRSs are fantastic. They are incredible. And I, just for the record, I play all kinds of different guitars. It's just Mm -hmm. PRSs do what I need to do very, very, very well. Very reliable. You go on tour and the tuning stability is second to none. I've never known a guitar staying tuned as well as PRSs. Even my guitar tech is like, your guitar just never goes out of tune. Like, and I'm like I know it's just just because they're built so well. I remember we did one tour where we played like Jakarta after we'd played like one of the coldest days in San Francisco. Like like two days later, we'd like flown, rested, streams, like the massive streams, right? And the yeah. other two guys' guitars who use a brand that I won't say just because, just in case we get in trouble for what I'm about to say. <laughs> Their, their guitars were going out of tune left, right, and centre. They were needing truss rod adjustments during the show. It was just insane how much from playing one show to another, you yeah. couldn't handle it. Like, I went to my guitar tech afterwards and I was like, I was surprised the guitar held up. Bear in mind, it was like 40 degree weather in wow. like we were playing in. And I was like, yeah, it held up really well. He says, do you know how many times I touched your truss rod like in preparation for the gig? I went, no. He said, none. <laughs> wow. Didn't even need an... <clears throat> no adjustment. It just handled it really, really well. Standard. But that's just a little on a tangent, but going back to this guitar, the 1993 PRS, it, it was a secondhand shop and it was going relatively cheap. And I tried it out and was like, oh, this is amazing. I already had a custom 24. So I was like, I didn't feel the need to get one. But there was something about this that I could, that was indescribable, really. This, every, everybody who's played this guitar has said there's that, that, you know, you get that guitar that's got a certain mojo and mm. you just can't find anywhere else. This has it. <laughs> so when I'm not in Cradle of Filth, this is the guitar I use all the time for all my session work, all my recording stuff. Um, 
when I'm in E standard, this mm. is basically the guitar that's you. It's beautiful. Absolutely stunning. But it belonged to a guy, and it's a really sad story, actually, but I'll try and keep it brief. Um, there was a guy who was a session guitar player, a German guy, who basically moved to LA when he was young, Was became a session... I think he studied uh, like GIT or MIT, I'm not sure which one. Um, but he studied there and ended up becoming like a top in-demand German session guy. He moved back to Germany and he was doing like world tours with some of Germany's biggest bands. And he basically bought this guitar brand new in LA. Mm-hmm. Like he was like, I need a versatile guitar to do all the session work I'm going to do. I'll buy this PRS. And it was his number one guitar. And he took on all these tours around the world and mm. it's in impeccable condition to say it's been a touring guitar. It looks it, yeah. But from the sounds of it, about two years after he bought it, and he was becoming a really successful guitar player. Um, he was on tour and he just passed away. Oh, wow. He went to bed on the tour bus and he didn't wake up. Wow. If you don't know why, it's not like he was hard partying, hard drinking, yeah. hard drugging kind of guy from the sounds of it. He was totally teetotal. He just went to bed and that was it. He just didn't wake wow. up. And bless him that the, the, his dad, 20, 20 or 25 years later, I'm trying to get the timeline right, he had all of his son's guitars and 20, 25 years later, he was like, I need closure. I can finally bring myself to sell these guitars. Mm. And he went in that guitar shop the morning I went there with about seven guitars, <laughs> basically put, ch- changed with him. In the afternoon, I bought that guitar and the guy who sold it me told me the story. Mm. And I was like, do you have the guy's number? And we called him. Yeah. And the guy, bless him, I explained who I was. He had heard of the band. And I says, well, I've just bought your son's PRS and it's going to go on the road with me. Oh. And the guy, oh. bless him, broke down crying. I'm, oh. I'm, I'm, well, I'm well enough thinking about it yeah. for, uh, to talk to him. Um, he basically said it's what his son always wanted was to see yeah. that like those guitars. He even talked about it going like, these guitars having a life beyond me. These are guitars that deserve to be played. And this the PRS went on tour with me. And now I use it for all my session where everything outside of Cradle of Filth that's used for everything. Beautiful. So it's uh, quite a, a sad story, but I like to think it's it's fulfilling its life that yeah. he always wanted Completely. it to do. Exactly. You know, it deserves to be played. Just because it's a... There's certain guitars that I think, especially like PRS, I know they're pricey guitars and all that, but mm. any guitar that like has a certain value to it, people think, oh, you just got to stick it on a wall and that's it. Like they deserve to be looked at and not played. And I'm like, mm. no, there's, there's music waiting to be that's born it. from these instruments. They have a story. That story needs mm. to be continued, not just, there you go. What a great yeah. art piece I have. So I absolutely agree. I mean, just by the nature of you, you play differently when you pick up different instruments goes to show that those instruments bring something to what you're doing. It's not just something that comes out of you and the instrument's a tool. It's mm. almost a relationship, isn't it, between you and, you know, the the, the instrument itself. And, exactly. And what comes out is a combination of those two things. So I completely agree. You know, I mean, like when Joe Bonamassa goes out on the road of his 59s, I'm sure there's collectors all around the world going, what are you doing touring with a 59 Les Paul? But he's the same school of thought as you, which is exactly. there's music in these things. And, and, you know, it deserves to come out. You just have exactly. to facilitate it. It's like, as we all know, like, like Greeny, like Kirk Hammett owns Greeny. And yeah, I'm sure yeah. there are people going, what are you doing? <laughs> That's Gary Moore and Peter Green's guitar. And now yeah. you're, for a lot of people, probably see it as being like it's been ruined by playing Metallica songs. <laughs> Whereas 
to me, I think that's the greatest thing ever. It's like that guitar's story isn't over yet. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. three of the most influential guitar players on the planet and three of the most influential guitar players in my guitar playing story have played the same guitar. Right? <laughs> and it's going on tour. It still has a life. Yeah. And that Les Paul arguably hadn't seen enough wah-wah action. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now we, now we know it can do everything, you know? <laughs> it can that handle so everything. True. I think most people were just kind of worried. They're like, don't you dare replace those pickups with like yeah. EMG EMGs in there. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, I think that was everyone's biggest worry. Yeah. <laughs> That's just what it needed. That's yeah. what it needed. Route out a battery compartment for the active pickups. <laughs> could you, oh, could you imagine the collectors? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> but thankfully, he hasn't done that. He's no. literally left it exactly the same. From what I gather, it's not even be, been refretted. Yeah. Nothing. Wow. It's literally exactly how it was left from Gary wow. Moore's possession. Imagine playing that. I've got a few friends of mine who are like guitar techs in bands who have happened to support yeah. Metallica and they've all gone, there it is. They see it in the guitar rack oh, and they're like, there yeah. it is. And literally Kirk, either Kirk himself or Kirk's guitar tech, Justin, will go, well, do you want to have a go on it? Kirk's wow. very much a believer is, yes, he owns that guitar. It's his guitar, but it's not his guitar. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Do you yeah, know what I mean? Completely. He's yeah. very much a bit of a believer going, no, Peter and Gary want this guitar played and yeah. by as many people on the planet as possible. This guitar deserves to be experienced by anybody who's in the vicinity of it. It's kind of so like he he's the custodian. openly say, go on, play it. Yeah, it's like yeah. he's the custodian of it almost. You know, Pretty like, much, like the, yeah. You know, yeah. Just like, it's like I it's was, a museum, you know, it's he, he owns the Mona Lisa, but everyone can come and see it, can't you? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a very similar experience that happened while I was on the US tour. I've got a friend of mine who's a producer friend of mine who, who does a lot of the Lost Symphony stuff that I've been doing, where mm. I do a lot of guitar play. Like I did a song like... There's a song that came out on the last album where it was me, uh, Kelly Kellerurik, um, who's also one of the Lost Symphony guitar players, but the other three guitar players were Nuno Betancourt, Marty Friedman, and Alex Skolnick. Now, Marty and Nuno especially are two of my all-time yeah. heroes. Even at ACM, I did a, a lecture about basically how good Nuno Betancourt is. <laughs> and now I'm on a record with him. That's but, crazy. But it was, again, one of those moments where you go, what the hell? But yeah. anyway, the producer who set all that up and I worked with, I went to visit him in Boston and he now owns Jason Becker's guitar collection. Oh my goodness. Wow. And so he basically bought the number, the famous Jason Becker numbers yeah. guitar. He was like, here it is. Do you want to have a go on it? And he, for his YouTube channel, he took, which hopefully we'll all see it soon. There's basically footage of me playing Jason's guitar. And then he was like, do you want to see something even cooler? And he kept this a secret until very recently. He, he, he didn't want me to tell anyone, but now he's told the world. He went, do you want to have a go on what's in this case? And it said Gibson. <laughs> it said Gibson. Okay. Le Les Paul. In Les Paul's handwriting, it said Les Paul. And I'm like, huh. what's this? He opened it up. He says, this is Les Paul's Les Paul. Wow. And now, yeah, like, I've seen the images. Like, what? It's gone, yeah. And he says, this oh. is the prototype. Les Paul, because Gibson had their prototype, but Les Paul mm -hmm. wasn't happy with it. Mm -hmm. This is for Les Paul, Les Paul. And it's wow. literally, you'd look at it, I played it, still plays brilliantly, but there's been wood chipped away at it. Les, Les had literally just grabbed a chisel and went, no, I don't like that. 
Wow. And it's all left like that. Like or, there's even sticky wow. tape in Les Paul's handwriting on the volume controls where it's like, I want the volume and the tone pop to have this capacitor in it. Change the capacitor. I don't know what it said on it exactly. I can't remember. But it was like, this is going to be changed. Like the notes are still left on it. Yeah. From what became the Les Paul. Like it originally, I think it was going to have 24 frets. So he went, no, not 24 frets. Gouged out the bottom two frets. <laughs> ripped them off. And the guitar has been left like that. Where it's like, and the, and like gouge it out and physically move the pickup closer wow. to the neck. So all the wood has been removed from either side of a pickup to allow the pickup to be. And he did all that himself. And it's like, that wow. is the guitar. That's patient that zero. Spawned everything. That's ground zero for basically electric <laughs> guitar as we know it is that guitar. Wow. And I got to play it. What did you play? Let me guess. Enter Sandman. Or I, I play. I- <laughs> Yeah, I played Smoke on the Water, <laughs> Stairway to Heaven. No, I, I can't remember what I played. I think I just noodled something, like just yeah. played around with it, just going, what What do you play? I think I just nah. improvised something in B minor or whatever. Yeah. And it was just like, I just need to hear what this note sounds like. I, I can't, whatever wow. I play on it isn't going to do it justice. I just want to have that moment so I played on it. And it was an incredibly well-playing guitar, and it sounded phenomenal. Really? Yeah, it, it, still to it this sounded day, it sounded played. phenomenal. Oh, yeah, goodness. And like I say, it's, that is the Les Paul that all Les Pauls were based on. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. But, but it just literally like he'd, like the neck profile, it like shaved down himself, and like even the headstock was going to be a particular shape, and he chiselled away at it himself and. Incredible. That's just guitar history, wow. like one of the biggest pieces of guitar history I'll ever have the fortune of playing. You know, it's Amazing. Incredible. So hopefully you'll see that video soon when uh, he edits the video and puts it out. Incredible. Wow. Well, that is, that. that's a that's a perfect place, I think, to wrap up our chat today as well, because that is, a, that's a beautiful story. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing that video. Um, if you don't mind me asking, could you remind us, remind us and your listeners where they can find your book as well? Your new it's, book that you've it's available on Amazon, but it is available worldwide. You can get it on paperback and Kindle versions. And uh, yeah, it should be available all wide as far as I'm aware. I've had a lot of students around the world say they've got their copy already. And people who aren't students in countries yeah. I that Crayler Filth have never even been to, mm. they've shown me pictures of them with their copy of the book. So as far as I'm aware, it's available on Amazon worldwide on paperback and Kindle. Fantastic. So go and look out for that. Right. It's, it's uh, fretboard and songwriting theory for metalheads and other genres too, using the secret to unlock the fretboard and your songwriting potential. I know it's a long title, but that's thanks to Amazon. All these books, I was like, they're like, give it a long title, then give it a long subtitle. because they, And I was like, really? And like all the advice I got was like, yes, just make sure that happens because basically the Amazon algorithm, if you're not worried about selling it anywhere else, you yeah. need to do whatever you want to do to get the Amazon algorithm to flare up. So they're yeah. like, basically, the more words, the better. And I was like, really? This seems quite long. And <laughs> like my proofreaders who work in like education were like, honestly, you'll be surprised how long these book titles can go on Amazon. That's quite a short <laughs> title. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but yes, it is available on Amazon worldwide, paperback and Kindle formats. Amazing. 
Well, congratulations to you, mate, for that. And um, thank you. Can't thank you enough. It's really great to see you again, Richard. I it's can't been thank great you to see you and, and Kieran. It's nice to meet you as well. I hope we stay in touch. Lovely. Yeah, lovely to meet you too. I've had so many moments. Just you're a great storyteller, uh, Richard. I hope you. I hope you'll come back onto the podcast um, again soon. I know there's so much more we can talk to you about. I've had so many moments on this chat over this last hour, just where my, where the hairs have stood up on my arms, and I've had tingles just listening to your <laughs> stories. Honestly, the philosophy we've dug into i know we've only just scratched the surface of some of the guitar gear and geeking out on that and there's so many more questions i have for you about your rig and your setup and and, and what makes a, a great a great live sound so so maybe you'd indulge us with a with another visit to the show in in 2022 definitely i've really enjoyed it so let's do this again and we'll get more into the gear side of things brilliant, brilliant. Can't thank you enough, Richard. Thank you so much, Thank you, mate. guys. Have a cracking week. Merry Christmas to everyone Merry Christmas listening. to you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, brilliant. All the best, guys. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and thank you again to Richard Shaw for being uh, such a gracious uh, interviewee for the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. We definitely going to get him on again to talk about more things and to geek out more on on uh, on guitar and, and uh, it's just such a pleasure to speak to him um, and we'll definitely do it again in the future. Uh, remember to uh, come and like us on our social media pages and come and have a look at our merchandise online. If you want to donate to the show you can through Buy Me A Coffee all the links to all that stuff are in the description um, to the podcast come and have a listen to us on YouTube as well anyway that's enough from us this week again have a wonderful Merry Christmas and we will speak to you next week take care bye bye